This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And what can I say about Professor Scott Galloway? You know him from the four. Uh, He is an outspoken critic of various technology companies. He says exactly what he thinks and feels. He does not mince words. He has a brand new book out called The Algebra of Happiness that is already getting delightful reviews. I read it over the holiday weekend and found it to be a pleasant and enjoyable romp filled with all sorts of good advices. This is going to be a stocking stuffer and a dad's and grad's present uh, for some time to come. I can babble for a long time explaining to you what's in our conversation, but rather than do that, I'm just going to say... With no further ado, my conversation with Scott Galloway. Our special guest this week is our returning champion, our first four-time Masters in Business uh, guest. You know him from his book, The Four, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook, and how they're destroying the world. He is a professor at marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. His latest book, The Algebra of Happiness, just came out to great reviews. Professor Scott Galloway, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Great to be here. And and you are a returning champion. You yeah. are our first four-time guest, yeah. at least here in the studio, and you are... The first person I think I've had on consecutive books. No, that's not true. I've had a few people for consecutive books. So let's start yes. um, with a little background. You wrote The Four. It yeah. was effectively a class you were giving at NYU sure. looking at marketing and technology. Sure. Tell us about that. So the dirty secret of business school is that the second year is mostly a racket to try and get double the tuition because you really just need the first year. And By the way, that's the same racket with law school. You really only need the first two first years. Two, yeah. The third year is gravy. 50% more revenue. For us, mm-hmm. 100% more revenue. And my belief is that if we were honest we would uh, and focused on the kids' economic security, we would teach four courses the second year, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Because mm-hmm. to understand those four companies is to understand media, retail, the economy, society, et cetera. So I teach a session of my class called The Four, uh, I do a video on the, that class. It gets a million views. Boom, book. My most. By popular, the way, that's how I found you. Was the Four Horsemen of the Internet yep. was one of your first videos. Yep. I'm like, who is this guy? This is really fascinating stuff. Yeah, that. So I got 1.1 million views. Approached by Penguin Portfolio Random House, which rolls right off the tongue. Great. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's encouraging when your when your publisher can't get their name right. But anyways, the. Uh, most popular course is the last session, and it's where I take a bunch of great research out there and some of my, my own personal observations and experience, and I try to distill best practices around creating an arc, an arc of satisfaction into some algorithms and some equations, and it's called uh, The Algebra of Happiness. It's my most popular session. Did a video, two million views, boom, next book. And that next book is The Algebra of Happiness. Yeah. So two million views... How many of those are people in the United States? How much of that is international? Who is watching a video called Algebra of Happiness? So I, I get, this is weird, I get 70% male and about 80% of my audience is under the age of 35. Uh-huh. So I appeal to um, young males uh, and I write a lot of, of this through the lens of the, you know, the individual that is just inherently you know, kind of wrong uh, when they show up, and that is a white heterosexual male. And mm-hmm. that's uh, you. That's me. So, 
but yeah, I find uh, there's an audience out there. Uh, I have a cottage industry in coaching and counseling the sons of my friends who are entering the workforce. Uh, but yeah, that's it's meant to be sort of okay. You think you come to business school for economic security. What you're really here for is to develop the skills and domain expertise such you can lead a rewarding life. Mm-hmm. And we go through these observations um, in the last class, and the kids seem to respond to it. So it's not about money. It's not about the pursuit of more. Yep. Although you talk about that um, in the book. There are some really uh, poignant quotes that, that stayed with me. Um, every wealthy person I know measures their net worth in frightening detail. This doesn't sound like happiness. How much happiness does money really buy? So there is a correlation between money and happiness. Middle-income people are happier than lower-income people. The affluent are happier than middle-income. But that's the bad news. There is a cor- correlation. We live in a capitalist society. I believe that everyone has a responsibility to be economically sustainable. Uh, so bust a move towards economic security is what I tell their kids. But once you get to economic security... Housing, healthcare, it can absorb an economic shock, can take nice vacations, which, according to most data in most cities, somewhere between one hundred and one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. I think in New York, it's probably closer to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars <laughs> a year. But once you get to that point, uh, the correlation between money or incremental revenue or monies and happiness flatlines. Right. So the key is at that point in your life, once you get to economic security, if you're fortunate enough to get there, the money, additional money, is the ink in your pen. Mm-hmm. And that is it can write different stories. It can make the current chapters burn brighter. But it's not your story. There's also a myth that billionaires are less happy than millionaires. They're not, but they're no happier either. Mm-hmm. So there's a real skill to saying at what point do you stop howling in the money storm and take pause and say, well, what gives me satisfaction? Why am I happy? Because more money won't give you more satisfaction. The terrible thing about a number is similar to what, you know, in that great Star Wars episode where Luke Skywalker is trying to convince Han Solo to rescue Princess Leia. He says, if you do this, you'll get more money than you'd ever imagine. And Han Solo responds, oh, I don't know, I can imagine a lot of money. So if I said to you, Barry, I said, all right, what were your goals when you were 22 or 25? You say, well, by now I would probably hope that I had a good relationship with my wife, some economic security, some relevance professionally, and good health. And I'm going to guess that you have most or all of those things. Pretty much, all four boxes. But you... You also know how much you're worth, or you know approximately how much you're worth, and it's pretty easy to imagine 2, 5, and 10x that number. And 10x so, is tough. You can't two imagine and, 10x? You can imagine double, right? No, I can imagine 10x. You can imagine that. You're yeah. a smart guy. You can imagine 10. Yeah. So, and that creates, uh, you know, it's easy to stay on the spinning wheel, and, and or the hamster wheel, and I think it's important that we have the discipline to say, okay... I need to at some point stop howling in the money storm if I'm fortunate enough to have met you know, more than my basic needs and figure out what really is meaningful to me. Hmm, that, that's interesting. I know that I've made a number of choices career-wise where I've turned down more money that I knew was just going to be a miserable slog for what I think is a pretty reasonable lifestyle and a pretty – I mean, I work a lot, yeah. but my wife calls me gainfully unemployed. I would be doing the same thing whether someone's – paying me or not. So there are choices you can make to not take the bigger, higher paying, but horrific, soul-sucking job and and just pursue something. I like to think we're making a difference in what we do, that we're, we're, if we're not denting the universe like Steve Jobs, at least we're having a positive impact on people. Yeah, well, uh, so I'll go in reverse order. Steve Jobs denied his blood under oath so he could avoid child support payments um, when not he was a nice worth a quarter guy. of a billion dollars. So, right. you know, we need more engaged fathers, not a better damn phone. But anyways, be that as a may. So you brought up the notion of turning down 
money to pursue stuff that you would enjoy more or think serves a larger purpose. All of that's important. However, however, I think some of the worst advice that kids get at Stern, we invite two types of speakers. We have three speakers a week for luncheon speakers. And it's either super interesting people or billionaires. Right. We have decided that if you've aggregated a billion dollars, you must be able to opine on almost anything, including life, spirituality. You know, you're, you're the master of all things because you've aggregated a billion dollars. And they end with what I think is some of the worst advice for most of the time, and that is they tell the kids all one thing. And what is that one thing? Follow your dream. Follow your passion. Right. Go for it. Which Go is do what you love. Such incredible BS because the guy, I tell people, if someone tells you to follow their passion, your passion, it means they're already rich. And the guy on stage telling you that is probably made his money in iron ore smelting. <laughs> so the objective, not exactly a passionate. There area. you go. So I, what I think, or my advice to kids when I say kids, young adults, is find something. Your job isn't to find your passion. Your job find what you're good at. Hundred percent, and then invest the requisite grit, perseverance, frustration, endurance around in the injustice that is called the workplace, and become great at it. And the accoutrements of being great at it. Economic security, the respect of your colleagues, the camaraderie you develop with people in the agency of greatness will make you passionate about whatever it is. But the problem with telling young people to follow their passion is what ends up happening is work gets hard. It does for everybody. Mm -hmm. And they think, well, maybe I'm not successful here. I don't love it, so it must not be my passion. I should move on. No, that's called work. You can't hate it. I hated investment banking, and I was no good at it, so that was a sign to get out. But the idea that Jay-Z followed his passion and is a billionaire. Assume you are not (laughs) Jay-Z. Assume that like most 99% of people, you're going to have to find something you're good at, invest a ton of time, and become great at it. I have to reference a disclaimer you have fairly early in the book. You write, I have no academic credibility or credentials to indicate I should counsel people on how to live their lives. So why did you write this? So this has been a journey of personal discovery. We were talking about this off mic. I struggle from what I would loosely call mild depression and issues with anger. And my sister summarized the problem perfectly a couple years ago when I was speaking to her. She said, why are you so pissed off all the time? And when I look at my blessings and I look at my mood, they don't foot to one another. And I decided that I would do some research around what are the best practices around people who are able to take stock of their blessings and translate that to their mood and their satisfaction with their own life. And there's a tremendous amount of great research out there. There's best practices, there's worst practices, and I try and summarize them for the kids and turn it into a class. But it's also been uh, a great personal journey for me to try and figure out, okay, how can I ensure that I take, that again, my blessings foot to my mood? So on that, there's a huge body of research about the positive power of gratitude. 100%. You discuss that in the book. How, how does one live a more grateful life? Well, there's supposedly tricks, and one of them is just writing them down. Supposedly we write them down, they cement them. But I think there's other things, too. I think with, especially with men, we have a problem communicating uh, admiration and affection for other people. Uh, As young men, especially when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, affection meant one of two things. You were trying to have sex with that person Mm -hmm. or you were a homosexual. And in the 70s or 80s, for a heterosexual man, both of those things were considered either suspect or a bad thing, right? Times have changed. Times have changed. And I think affection, if you look at mammals, if you look at where we're happiest, if you look at what we're meant to do, we're pack animals and we're meant to touch each other. Now, unfortunately, because of just some outrageous and criminal behavior in the workplace, We've conflated masculinity with toxicity, and we've said affection in the workplace is a bad thing. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. But I think men need to take back affection and be affectionate with their children, express affection 
to their friends. And the reality is it just doesn't take a ton of common sense to recognize when affection isn't welcome. But affection is a wonderful thing. And also just verbal admiration. Like, Barry, I think you're an impressive guy. I think you, you have an, a really interesting career. And I love the fact that you talk about your hobbies. You just seem like you just seem like a guy that would be a great mentor, a great uncle, the guy people want to hang out with. Saying that, most men, when they say that, feel mm-hmm. as if they're giving up something. That admiration is a currency. That when I say <laughs> that, that it somehow takes that away from me, especially young men. So what I encourage people to do, or young men, is to say, look... One of the greatest things that can take you off track is that don't assume the people in your life are telepathic. Thinking loving thoughts about your friends and family doesn't make you a loving person. You have to express these things. And the greatest untapped resource in the world is the good things you feel about other people that you don't articulate. We assume that people telepathically understand that we admire them, that we respect them, that we're fond of them. And I think the fastest way to increase your short-term happiness is to find the courage to when you when you feel good things about other people to express them. And quite frankly, it's a little bit embarrassing. You make yourself vulnerable. Sometimes it can even be off-putting to the other person. But on the whole, I think it's one of the greatest hacks to feeling more grateful and being more happy is just expressing all the good thoughts that run between your ears every day. So you're suggesting an individual can decide to be happy, can decide to be grateful, can implement hacks in order to achieve that state? So I think there are best practices and I don't think there's an equation and I also don't I want to I want to be I want to disclose that I think there are certain forms of depression and neuroses that require outside intervention. But there are through and, and there is no one equation. So the title is a little bit misleading. One happiness is a sensation. We were talking about Kahneman before. What I'm really talking about is the decisions and investments you make through the course of your life such that the arc or the narrative of your life is a little bit more satisfying and the highs and lows that we all experience swing on a higher plane. So I don't think there's any one equation. People have to find their own route, but there are best and worst practices. So the Harvard Grant study, largest study of its kind on happiness, found worst and best practices. Let me interrupt you. They tracked... I 400, think it was five, men. 400 men over yeah. 75 years. Yeah, over 80 years. Uh, and it's interesting, started, I think, in the 20s, and was, it, which gives you sort of insight into the way we thought about people and what was important in the 20s. We decided to track 400 men, right? Like, who cares sure. about women's happiness? 1920s, you know, and, of course. And no woman, of course, is surprised by that. And we waited till we tracked them for 80 years, or the scientists tracked them for 80 years, everything they ate, what they did at work, all of their relationships, their sporting activity or lack thereof, their media and then queried them on a regular basis, their levels of happiness and satisfaction, and then aggregated the largest data set on longitudinal happiness ever, and then said, what are the best practices among the people who are happiest or seem more satisfied? What are the worst practices among people who seem least satisfied? One, And they had to swap out four principal scientists. So let's start with the worst practice. The one thing that was prevalent or consistent most often across the, lo- the cohort with the lowest level of happiness, any guesses? Alcohol. 100% alcohol. And that surprised me. And by the way, this is like what I call a do what I say, not what I do. I love mm-hmm. alcohol. I feel as if I've gotten more out of alcohol than it's gotten out of me, a great Churchill quote. Although <laughs> although you write in the book that in your 20s and 30s, alcohol messed with you. Yeah, it did. It did. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. But basically, alcohol was seen in a lot of instances as ruining relationships, taking people's health off track, careers coming undone. Uh, and what I, when I look back, when I first moved to New York in the 80s, and I w- took a job with Morgan Stanley, 
every night I'd go out and get pretty much, you know, drunk with other people that felt like they were successful mm-hmm. at a cool place downtown. And it had sort of this what I call artificial relevance and fabulousness to it. And I found that over time, I was less effective at work. I lost touch with a lot of people. I wasn't investing in relationships with my family. And I decided after two years of that, that I was just going to dial it back. And the problem I find with young people is that their litmus test for whether they have a problem with substances is they say, am I addicted? Have I had an intervention? Am I living under a bridge? And if they have a job and they're well-liked and they're doing well, they think, oh, I don't have a problem with substances. And but it's not that long. black and white. There are nuances here. And 80 to 90% of substance abusers are functioning substance abusers. Mm-hmm. The better question is, if I dial down X, Y, and Z substances, whether it's trans fats, whether it's alcohol, whether it's pot, whether it's shopping, would I just be better at a bunch of things? Mm-hmm. And what I counsel my kids on, or my students, is take stock of every external substance and imagine you did a half, two-thirds, 80% more. Because there's also, I think, this narrative, it has to be zero or one. You right. either have to totally give it up or you don't have a problem. Everything in moderation. That's 100%. So, but for me, it was something where I felt a lot healthier, a lot better. And, uh, but yeah, that's definitely the, the one thing they found in happiness. The best practice, if there is a hack, and of course the students all want to get to the one thing, is they found that the cohort that was happiest, it was pretty pretty straightforward. It was based on the depth and number of meaningful relationships in their life. At work, do you feel respect and admired? And do, do you respect and admire other people? Amongst your friends, do you get a sense of camaraderie and joy? And do they sense camaraderie and joy from you? And at home, amongst your family, do you feel an intense level of support and love? And just as importantly, do you know they feel that sense of love and joy from you? In this sense, the Harvard Grant Study burned through four principal scientists because they kept dying over the course of those 80 years, summarized this you know, hundred and something page report, and it has the best opening line of any academic study to summarize the findings, and it's the following, happiness is love, full stop. And that is the one thing we find across almost all these studies on happiness, that it's your ability to invest in and maintain deep, meaningful relationships across your friends and at work and at home. Let's talk about those students and I want to reference something in the book that I thought was fascinating. There's a chart, uh, effectively, that looks like a smile that shows where people in their life cycle are happiness. Sure. uh, When they're young and when they're old. Tell tell us about that. Yeah, it's difficult. This is just, it's gorgeous data, because across all studies and across, cutting across ethnic groups, uh, income cohorts, uh, cultures, we found, or they find something very similar. And that is, people are generally happiest in the beginning and the ends of their lives. And that is from zero to 25, it's the stuff of Disneyland, your first car, exploration of self, spilling into adulthood, football games, you know, just magic, right? And then kind of from 25 to 45, it's what I call the life gets real phase. And that is you find that you're not going to have a fragrance named after you, you're likely not gonna be a senator. Someone you love gets sick and dies. Having children is stressful. What's interesting we don't like to talk about is that when we survey or when they survey people with kids and without kids, on average, the people without kids are actually happier. Without kids. Without kids. That's surprising. It is surprising. Now, at the end of life, people consistently say, we have a hormone that releases that erases the bad times, and we feel more rewarding and more fulfilled uh, having had kids. But during it, they're less happy. It's stressful. Kids are stressful. They put economic pressure on you. You know, I, my, one of my favorite things is, you know, kids ruin everything. Babies are awful, and they get less <laughs> awful, but still, it's kids are, kids are difficult. So you have 
And then you find that you face economic stress usually at some point in your life with the cycles. And you find you wake up oftentimes, sometimes 25, 35, and 45, and you're disappointed. We have a tendency to anchor off the most successful person we know. Sure. We have a tendency to believe what college and our parents told us, that we can be anything. This, which, is, this is why Facebook and Instagram is so toxic. Well, it's especially toxic because, again, we have this wonderful competitiveness gene that ensures that the next generation will be taller, faster, smarter, stronger. And by anchoring and aspiring off the most successful person we do, that has a very positive evolutionary benefit. But it also makes us feel bad about ourselves. And the thing about Instagram is that these people become somewhat relatable. And Alain de Bouton, who I think is going to go down as one of the more interesting thinkers, says, envy is a function of familiarity. So we don't envy mm. the queen. We don't say, oh, I wish I were the queen. I wish I were rolling around in that carriage. But on Instagram, you not only see what you're missing out on, you see it play out in real time amongst your friends. And it's kind of their success is shoved in your face, especially among young people who are unable to really to really modulate that. Mm-hmm. But 25 to 45 are usually is usually your least happiest time. And then something wonderful happens in your 50s and in your or younger if you're soulful and you start finding appreciation and joy in places you didn't find it before. I used to surf when I was younger because I thought I was cool. Mm-hmm. Now I'm kind of fascinated by the, the idea I can be out there and I wouldn't even call it surfing anymore. It's more me clinging to a piece of fiberglass for dear life. <laughs> But the fact that several thousand tons will emerge because of the geometry of the sand floor and the, the way the sun feels and the I mean you just you're just joyous, right? Mm-hmm. You, these small things that look like you called children become more joyous. You maybe you take stock of your blessings, maybe you have a little bit of economic security, you realize life is finite, you appreciate your health, you find joy in things you'd never find joy in, nature or art, and you get happier. And the cohort that is happiest would logically be the cohort that should be the least happy, and that's people who start to have their health fail, and that's seniors who are consistently the happiest. So the advice Hmm. here is simple in your 20s and 30s among people who are having a tough time, and that is this is a a normal part of the journey, and the key is to keep on keeping on that happiness waits for you. Let's roll back from the 50s, 60s, and, and later years to those 30s and 40s. You write in the book... This is the time of your life where you have to make your bones, where you're going to work hard, you're going to put in a lot of hours, but you need to do that during those decades so so the future and happiness arises. Explain that. So I survey the kids, again, the students, about where how much money they expect to be making in 10, 20, and 30 years. And 90-plus percent of them expect to be in the top 1%. So granted, this is selection bias because the second year of business school in New York, the average salary coming out of school is one hundred eighteen thousand, right? Which is a lot of money. That already double puts them, the median across the whole. That already country. puts them in kind of the eighty fifth or eighty eighth right. percentile, and they expect to be in the 99th by the time they're thirty five or forty. And my observation, and I believe there's data to back this up, is that if you expect to be in the 99th percentile, balance is a myth. And right. we all know somebody who's good-looking, in great shape, has good relationships with their parents, donates time at the ASPCA, and has a food blog. Assume you are not that person. <laughs> Unless you're smart enough to inherit a lot of money, if you expect to be in the top economic weight class, you should expect to do not much else other than focus on your career in your 20s and 30s. And by the way, I want to acknowledge that's not the road to happiness for everybody. A lot of people say, I'm not going to howl in the money storm. I'm going to find a way to lower my burn, and I'm not going to let money dictate my happiness. We live in a capitalist society, and most of the people we know have decided that they want a certain level of economic security and success, and it has to be an honest conversation with yourself. In my 20s and 30s, I don't, I don't know about you, Barry, I don't remember much else than working. And I want to be clear, it came at a price. I, I'm bald. I, I burned through my first marriage. 
And I, I'm not going to totally abdicate personal responsibility for those failures, but I think a lot of it was the fact that for two decades, I was very focused on economic security and not much else. So I think young people just have an honest have to have an honest conversation because we're told when we're young, you can have it all. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not here with a message of hope. It's difficult to have it all, and there, everything is a trade-off. So I have a lot of balance now, as you do, mm-hmm. because I didn't have very much when I was young, and that was a conscious decision I made. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. So we talked a bit about technology. Yep. Let's get into some of the details about sure. this, because your, your previous book obviously um, delved into some areas. You made some bold forecasts, yep. some of which were incredibly prescient. You said a year ahead of time, hey, Amazon should buy Whole Foods. It'll give them a giant footprint, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And and they did. Were you at all surprised by this whole Amazon HQ debacle? Well, so look, I, and I'm, I'm boasting here, but the beginning of 2018, I said, this isn't a contest, it's a con. And that is, I've been on seven public company boards, a dozen private company boards, and I've been through four headquarter relocations. And in retrospect, it all came down to one thing, uh-huh. and that is where the CEO wanted to spend more time, where he was, he or she was president of their golf club or where his next wife was living. Mm-hmm. When you are a 55-year-old man worth $155 billion, it means that you have more options than anyone in the world, and you are the master of no. So query me this. A guy who is 55 worth $155 billion, is he going to spend 12 minutes, much less 12 weeks, in Indianapolis? Is the wealthiest man in the world going to decide to roll in Columbus, Ohio? And this is the sophisticated analysis I did, Barry. The Bezos have four homes, one in Seattle, one in LA, one on the Upper East Side, and one in Calorama, DC. LA made no sense because they couldn't justify that because geographically it would make no sense to have a headquarters just down the coast. So I said, on Fox, CNN, and CNBC, this is all a ruse. They have gamified this to extract a pound of flesh from municipal police, fire, and school departments and transfer it to Amazon shareholders, but they have absolutely no intention of going anywhere but D.C. and New York. And I was wrong. It was both. Right. You said D.C. or New York. I said D.C. or New York, and I was wrong. They picked both. This wasn't a contest. It was a con. And by the way, while I'm on a, a riff here, remember that terrible imagery that there were that kind of race baiting that Reagan engaged in, the, the image of a welfare mother, he, or mm-hmm. welfare queen, right? Right. This Driving notion, the Cadillac. Yeah, an individual gaming the system, right, and taking our tax dollars for their own benefit. The mother of all welfare queens mm-hmm. is Jeff Bezos because he never sells his stock, triggering a capital gain, meaning he never, ever leaks taxes, never pays taxes. So how does he finance his lifestyle, Barry? He borrows money at 15 to 2.5% against his stock at J.P. Morgan, and then 17% of every subsidy given to Amazon, whether they locate a, a data center or a headquarter, goes into his pocket. So if you looked at our economy, what, $20 trillion, $5 trillion, a government, $600 billion goes to the military, or whatever, is a trillion right. and a half go to Social Security, an outflow is to the wealthiest man in the world. Jeff Bezos is, a, is, is literally the mother of all welfare queens. And Alexa, is this a good thing? <laughs> so... Let me push back on that a sure. little bit, because sure. I, I am no stranger to corporate welfare queens, yep. and to me, the the biggest offenders are the Walmarts yep. and the McDonald's, 
the companies who have gained the system, stamps? right? The yeah. ones who, who figured yep. out how to charge, yep. how to pay as little as they possibly can. And then have government Remem- assistance. Right. Yep. Remember a couple of years ago, McDonald's yep. literally had a McHelpline yep. so that they could get their employees on food stamps and aid to dependent children. And yep. when you look at the highest employers yep. of government assistance on a state-by-state basis, it's invariably Walmart and and or McDonald's. Now, over the past five years, they've improved a lot. Yep. I can't blame Bezos for, A, not showing a profit by reinvesting their money. They yep. purposefully are low-profit company. No yep. profits mean no taxes. Yep. And B, if he chooses not to sell his stock, again, I can't push back too hard on that. Yep. But the point that, hey, you're the wealthiest man in the world. This is one of the highest market cap, one of three biggest market cap companies in the world. Yep. Pay your fair share of taxes. 100%. That that nobody can argue with. So you said a lot there, and I I think at the end of the day we have to have greater minimum wage. It hasn't kept pace with inflation, and Walmart and all of these companies should be probably paying more money, uh, and the government should be paying less to such that these people can survive. I acknowledge the point. Now, whether or not it's what is worse, having billions or tens of billions of dollars spread across low-income people or the working poor, or going out to the wealthiest man in the world, I would argue that the latter is worse. I don't think Jeff Bezos is doing anything wrong. I think the man in the mirror, the guilty party here, is you and me who haven't elected officials who are smart enough to recognize that the markets have gone through a fundamental shift. And when a company can become the third most valuable company in the world and is on its way to becoming the most valuable company on Mm -hmm. the world, when it can effectively pay no taxes because the markets don't demand profits or meaningful profits, we have an economic and taxation construct that no longer works for our society. We can have a functioning economy when the most successful company in the world, Amazon, pays $1.4 billion in taxes since 2008, and Walmart has paid $64 billion. Amazing. I'm not saying they've done anything wrong, but our economy can't operate. So even in France, and we immediately think that any idea from anywhere else is socialist or stupid, right. that we, are, we have a monopoly on good ideas. But France has basically said, look, we give up. Your tax lawyers are smarter than our tax authorities, so we're going to tax you on your top-line revenues. Brazil is doing the same thing. In Britain, Google registers about $6 billion sterling in business every year, and for the purposes of profitability and taxation, they report a 50,000-pound profit every year. On a product that's got to be- $6 billion. Na- on six, no, ten billion or ten billion seven and a half, right? What okay. is it? One twenty-seven, so about seven point six billion. Shocking. And they've decided what they report to the government that can be taxed is fifty thousand pounds, and it's expensive to do business in London. It's not that expensive. <laughs> so we are in a system now where, when you have the most successful company in the world not paying taxes, when you have companies that game the system and can avoid the you know avoid taxes by locating in the Isle of Jersey, Apple's international headquarters is in a small small island off the British coast. I mean, this is this is arguably these companies are not only masters of technology or masters in business, they're masters of tax avoidance. Mm-hmm. And we haven't elect the, elected the officials that that acknowledge and will counter what is a regressive tax, and that is the most successful people, the most successful companies pay less taxes. And taxation is largely a zero-sum game, which means mm-hmm. the following. Small and medium-sized companies have to pay more. So we have basically said, all right, if you win the lottery- And, and lower and middle income people effectively- 100%. More. So this is, we have, we have institutionalized a regressive corporate tax structure. And, and that's problematic. And to go to your point that Amazon headquarters search was a con, today, just today, we learned that they're looking to take 50 or 100,000 spa- feet of space 
in Manhattan. Regardless. For offices. So the whole thing was just a nonsensical. A total ruse. Right. And total they, ruse. They need to be at this location. They need to have access to the talent or whatever else is here. And the whole thing was just Look, a scam. Look, I, I think this reflects poorly. I think this reflects that the board of Amazon and Jeff Bezos lack character and code. Because this was nothing but an elegant transfer of funds from municipal fire, police, and school districts into the shareholders' pockets of Amazon shareholders. To their credit, Google and Apple are all both adding thousands of jobs in New York. Why? We have three world-class universities here. It's a fantastic place to do business. And you know what? That comes at a cost. The worst poker players in the world, Bill de Blasio and, and Governor Cuomo, they were always coming here. They were always coming here. And even when they pulled out and said, Oh, we're angry, we're, we're leaving. We're we're no, they're coming here. They're just doing it quietly. Because bottom line, the wealthiest man in the world doesn't need to commute to Ohio. He's not going to. <laughs> so let's talk about a couple of our other favorite tech companies. Um, I read something fascinating. I actually uh, emailed you the story about WeWork and their new investment subsidiary that's going to buy the buildings that they're going to sublet. Yeah. Now, I haven't bought into WeWork as a Ponzi scheme, yeah. although, and I know you've said some harsh things about them, yeah. but the idea that they're going to invest in the buildings that they then sublet to themselves starts to smell like old cheese a little bit. Yeah, it's uh, so look, the most overvalued private company until about two months ago was Uber. Mm -hmm. And they were claiming that they were worth $120 billion. No, they're Whoops. not even worth 60 or 70. This company could execute perfectly and still be cut in half in terms of any reasonable measure. Uber, we're talking about oh, 100%. Uber. 100%. Uh, do you agree that they waited too long to go public and left so much value on the table because they got greedy? Or what's no, the thinking I, behind that? I think that they should have never gone public. And the private really? markets are now more amenable to companies like this. And essentially, Here's a better prediction. Everyone talks about is Uber or Tesla going out of business. I think the NASDAQ and the NYC are going out of business. Wait, we'll come back to that. Roll, roll back a sec. Uber, which yeah. has 30 or 40 billion in venture capital. Yeah. How do they not go public? There's no exit for tons and tons of VCs who aren't looking for 5% a year for a million years. There's secondary markets now in the private markets. There's liquidity in the private markets. There never used to be. Now, not of course, $80 billion worth, not $100 Not eight. Yeah, they raised eight. That's a fair point. They probably can raise $8 billion, but there were secondary trades taking place. There's secondary trades right now in 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 stocks. In, in, and you, know, you can buy shares in most private companies now with secondary. Mm -hmm. There's liquidity. Now, again, the retail investor... Uh, who loses? The retail investor now gets to buy stuff when it's totally overvalued and there's no other source of that kind of capital. But mm -hmm. going back to the most now the most va overvalued private company in the world is WeWork. Supposedly right. it's being valued at $40 billion. I think they did $2 billion in revenue and lost two. I mean, this, and they have their own metrics. They call it- Hey, that's a 50% margin. That's fantastic. Go. And they call it community-based EBITDA. <laughs> right. So, and if you do the analysis, and one guy, I think maybe even here at Bloomberg, did the analysis and said, based on this valuation, the floor that WeWork leases is now worth more than the building. The whole building, right. So, and you have, you have a company sort of in, investing long, taking out 10-year leases, and then going short on its revenue, right. because which and that's the value is there are being a demand around short term supply. But Next the downturn, they're in trouble, huge trouble. And even again, if this company executes perfectly, it's not worth. I mean, it's a Regis with IPA beer. Remember mm -hmm. Regis? Sure. It, it's it's cooler. It's a great concept. They built a great brand. 
You know, I think you and I could probably build a great brand around a $2 billion business if we're allowed to lose $2 billion. <laughs> this company is a train wreck in terms of valuation. Really? What's going to happen with the IPO? Will there be an IPO? That It'll be really interesting to see if WeWork can get out. I wonder if the marketplace is starting to exit the consensual hallucination between unicorn status and all these BS words. I like to do a word cloud across every prospectus. Mm -hmm. And in Lyft and Uber, you saw things like networking effect, flywheel effect, autonomous driving. First off, there's no evidence that autonomous driving will be either good nor bad for Uber and Lyft. It just means they don't have to pay the drivers. They'll but, pay a little more for the car and no driver. But quite frankly, their economic advantage is they figured out a way to find 4 million people who will work for below minimum wage. Right. Now, that's not a good thing. It's the what, about, what about 4 million cars for zero wage? But who garners the economic value there? It'll be the uh, engineers that create that technology. Probably. And why is that going to be Uber and not Google, which is the greatest concentration of IQ ever? Anyways, I think you could argue both ways what's going to happen there. What Uber has been able to figure out is a flywheel effect, and that is it has launched a new business on this incredible platform, Uber Eats, because there's real value in Uber. It's a global brand. It's typically the first and the last brand the global affluent interact with when they're in a foreign city. They've got tremendous data. They've got a fantastic brand, a culture of innovation. There's a lot of things they could do there. So if mm -hmm. they execute perfectly, they're only going to be worth what BMW is worth, which is around $30 billion or the stock's going to get cut in half. The company that could go to zero if they don't get acquired is Lyft. There is no network effect there. There is no global brand. There is no flywheel effect. Really? There's just a company hemorrhaging money. You don't think that there will be space in the in the market for a number two to Uber's number one? I don't. Here's the thing about so it's easy to talk down stocks. A company that I think is undervalued mm -hmm. is Airbnb, because what you need with Airbnb is you need local you need local supply, you need apartments. In the same way with ride hailing, you need local supply, you mm -hmm. need drivers in Cleveland. But with ride hailing, all you need is local demand, and that is you and I could start a ride hailing company here in New York and create demand and supply. With Airbnb, you need local supply. But you need global demand because right. the majority of people coming into Cleveland are from Scandinavia and Cape Town and all all manner of right. cities around the world. So they have extraordinary moat around their business. But ride hailing has very few moats, low entry, a lot of local players. It's a price war. They convince the consumer that twenty dollars worth of service is worth fourteen dollars. They're not afraid to go after each other. They have a decent amount of cheap capital. This is going to get very ugly. So a lift. I think that's either, you know, Lyft gets maybe bought at some point, but you can imagine Lyft going to zero. There's real value in Uber, real value, maybe even 20 or $30 billion in value, but at 60, that I, I, I have a difficult time making the argument for how this company in any way justifies that type of job. We have been speaking with Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tapes rolling and continue discussing all things technology and happiness related. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column. You can find that on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Scott, thanks so much for doing this. I, I have Thank to you. tell you, I... 
I plowed through the book over the holiday weekend. Thanks, Barry. I, I, I found it like just a fun, fast read. It, it was literally sitting on the beach out in the Hamptons. Nice. And and I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I'm shocked at how revealing you are in the book. Yeah. You you basically say here, I'm naked, warts and all. Yeah. Um, that's a challenging thing to do. Yeah, what I found, though, Barry, is that when you're when you when you're authentic and you try and be open about, like, I, I'm very good at talking about my victories. Mm-hmm. I, I can do that. Aren't I we do all? that pretty well. Right. So talking about my shortcomings and some of the things that I, I've struggled with, what you find is there's a lot of people out there, some that you know very well, some strangers, and they reach out and you find out other people struggle with stuff. See, and, see I would be horror. So I happen to know what a deep dark depraved person i am on the inside and i would be really mostly depraved i I would be you're not that deep but you're just mostly depraved the depravity has depths that's what i was referring to but i would be sort of afraid for people to so i i personally think i've come a long way but i think people would be shocked to know the sort of screw up i was in my 20s, oh, come you on, mentioned, We're all oh, screwed. first Everyone's of all, screwed. I know what to do with myself. The functional families are the ones you don't know, Barry. <laughs> uh, maybe. I, in my 20s, I didn't know what to do with myself. Yeah. If you grow up on Long Island and you're a Jewish male and yeah. you're, don't, you know, you don't have a purpose, well, yeah. you go to law school. That's right. pretty much the That's the what law. grad school's for. It's right. for the elite and the aimless. Uh, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so by the time I got out of law school, I knew two things. I knew I was fascinated by the intellectual debate surrounding jurisprudence, yep. and I knew for sure I did not want to be a lawyer. But it took me- But it's a great education. Fantastic education. Yeah. Arguably, yeah. I've made the claim that law school is a superior education to business school because, at least the way business school used to be taught, yeah. it would fill people's heads with how business should be run, whereas law school teaches you how to think- and also a, to write, yeah, a hundred percent. And so, uh, you know, I was a screw up in my twenties, and even in my early thirties, it took me till I was, you know, my wife kicked me in the butt and said, "Figure out what the hell you're going to do and go do it." You're sort of. Oh, don't kid yourself. You're still a screw up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, look, don't, don't sell your short. Look, you're you're quite a slut. We're all trying to figure out. The key is, are you putting one step, one foot in front of the other, and then hopefully along the way making small investments and in relationships, and one of the. You know, we talk about, this is a finance show or a business show, you know, we talk about the magic of compound interest. Put $1,000 a month, a quarter, a year, when you're a young person, you wake up and you have, you know, a couple hundred grand when you're older. The same is true of relationships. There's evidence that small investments, when you're a younger person that are consistent, a quick text message, a call, you know, a note saying, hey, I'm sorry I heard about this, or congratulating people, finding time for the reunion, finding time for weddings. You wake up, and when you've made those little investments, you find that you have a lot of meaningful relationships, or that you wake up and that meaning that relationship is just more meaningful. And so, just as we tell young people to be disciplined about making short-term investments or small investments as they're young, I think all of us can start away, uh, uh, start right away, and start making little investments across a broader set of relationships. And then I think you do wake up one day and think, "Wow, there's a lot more in this bank than I'd ever imagined." Mm-hmm. That it, it does compound interest applies to relationships. Most people, when asked what is the singular singular relationship in their life, most say, or across, their mom. Really? And when you think about it, why is that? Some of it's instinctual, but a lot of it is that your mom is the premier investor. She began making little investments in you every day from a very 
very early point, and you end up with a relationship that is singular when you're older. And I think that's a lesson in the importance of not only investing and saving early, but making an effort to make small, tiny, regular investments in relationships from a young age. I'm going to tell you something that you did for me unknowingly. Yep. You write about giving your mom a good death yep. in the book, and it's yep. actually a very touching story in how you explain yep. how significant that is to you personally. So my mom is fairly healthy, but mm-hmm. she's 83. Yep. You don't live forever. Oblivion yep. beckons. And early, and it was something that wasn't actually from the book. It ended up in the book. Yep. It was from um, No Malice, from your website. Yep, No Mercy, No Malice. No Mercy, yep. No Malice. And basically, you talked about that. Maybe it was in the original per- post about um, your mom. Yep. And- it my mom is there's two problems with my mom she's a giant pain in the neck and i'm just yeah, like that's her. called a mom but no no but even worse i'm just like her yeah, i used to yeah. i used to jokingly tell my wife yeah you know i was born into a wealthy family just the wrong family yeah. took me home i really yeah. should have been you know royalty yeah. the wrong family took me home and she goes I've met your mother. There's no way the wrong family took you home. Yeah. And the fact that I'm her clone, yeah. and so I get to be irritated by all her habits that yeah. I have in spades, your your post on that last year sort of softens how I interact with her for the better. Yeah, look, everyone has, I don't want to call it love-hate, but, you know. She any- installed all the buttons Not only does she know how to push your buttons to make you crazy, she's the one who installed them. And just look at how your wife treats her parents. You're just like, gosh, how how come you're so impatient with them? But anyways, for me, there's a lot of research and a lot of literature out there on the reward or lack thereof of raising kids. I don't think what we talk a lot about, because it's, I guess it's scary, is the reward of giving someone a good exit. And I recognize Mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of virtue signaling here, but I was in a position- I hate that phrase, by the way, virtue virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is just an ad hominem attack against people you don't like. Hold that aside. So I don't like myself? No, no, I mean, when people (laughs) accuse you of virtue signaling, they're not attacking your idea. They're saying, oh, you're just, uh, we're going to own the list. For me, it's imposter syndrome, where I think I sound like a better person than I am, and I want to acknowledge. Well, we could talk about that also. (laughs) Hold me, Barry. Anyways, I I was in a position, and a lot of people aren't, but my mom was a light of my life, raised me alone on a secretary salary, but it's not a sob story. We had a nice life. There was a lot of discipline and a lot of love in my household, and I decided I had the resources and I had the flexibility to take uh, some time off, and I moved in with her. Uh, I asked her what when she was diagnosed with terminal cancer, I said, what's on your bucket list? Right? That's what a son does, right? right? And she said, I only have one thing on my bucket list. And I said, what's that? And she said, I want to die at home. And I'm like, okay, we can make that happen. It's not going to be easy, but I can figure that out. I moved in with her, so I moved into the Dell Webb Active Living Seniors Community in Summerlin, Nevada. Mm-hmm. And during the day, I would manage my mom's health care, and we'd watch Jeopardy and look at old photos. And at night, I'd go downtown to the strip, get drunk, and party with strippers. It was a very (laughs) unusual, yet very rewarding part of my life. And I will cherish that. I'm most proud, I think, of my children, my professional or modest professional success, and also just giving my mom the right exit. And Mm -hmm. I'm blessed because a lot of people can't do that. But what I say to people is if if you're in a position to help your parents exit me more dignified, and I'm not talking about it's the right thing and you're a good person. It's very rewarding. It, mm-hmm. it was she and I really nothing went unsaid, and it was it was a nice it was just a, a very rewarding opportunity, and it's something that I'll cherish the rest of my life. Uh, I found that to be really inspirational and something that was um, was really interesting in the book. Um, let's talk a little bit about some other things from the book that I thought was was fascinating. While you're young, get credentialed 
and get yourself to a city. Sure. Explain. So we live in a caste system. We like to think it's a meritocracy. The U.S. is very much and increasingly become a caste system. And explain what that caste system is. It's simple. It's where you went to college. Mm -hmm. And that is show me two things. I can tell you how much someone is going to make within fairly tight band based on two things. Where they're certified, where they're credentialed in terms of the college they went to, and their zip code. Show me someone who has an engineering degree from Dartmouth who lives in New York or San Francisco. I'm going to show you someone who's making 150 k a year by the time they're 30. Show me someone who's a high school dropout living in Little Rock. Little Rock. That person's lucky if they're making 40K by the time they're 30. We live in a caste system. Get certified. And I recognize that college isn't always the, the right thing for everybody. I don't care if it's a class three driver's license, an esthetician's license, or a member, a union card. You have to get credentialed. Also, while you're young, get to a city. Two-thirds of the economic growth is going to happen in the top 20 cities in America over the next 20 to 30 years. It gets harder and harder to be in a city when you get older and start collecting dogs and kids, so get there while you're young. But people constantly come up to me and say, my son's thinking about dropping out of college. Maybe he's the next Steve Jobs. And I'm like, assume your kid is not Steve Jobs. (laughs) And we have these very well-publicized examples of college dropouts going on to do well. And that there are is three, just three of them, though. You hear Bill Gates, Mark that's Zuckerberg, dangerous. and Steve Jobs. How many of, tell me about the rest of the Fortune 1000 top 100 people in those companies. How many of those dropped out of college? Yeah, very few. And most have graduate degrees. Increasingly <laughs> fewer, but almost all of them have uh, college degrees. Now, the problem is, is the man in the mirror test, academics, we have become drunk on exclusivity. We no mm-hmm. longer see ourselves as public servants. We see ourselves as luxury brands, and we brag about the fact that 90% of the people that apply to NYU don't get in, which is tantamount to a housing or a homeless shelter bragging that they turned away 90% of the people who showed up to sleep there that night. That is not a good thing. You and I both went to remarkable schools that gave us remarkable opportunities, and we've talked about this. Both you and I were remarkably unremarkable. And if we hadn't had the generosity of New York and California taxpayers, respectively, pick us up by the scruff of our neck and fling us forward into opportunity, You and neither you nor I would be here right now. So let's talk about that a sec, because it touches on both the credentials and your mom. I love this story from the book. You, gotten, you had gotten rejected by UCLA, and your mother kicks you in the butt and says, reapply. Right. My, I just got rejected three months ago. Doesn't matter. Reapply. Appeal. And you, yeah. you write to them, I'm a native son of California raised by an immigrant single mother who is a secretary. If you don't let me in, I'm going to be installing shelving for the rest of my life. Yeah, my parents both dropped out of school or were taken out of school when they were 13 to work for their families in London and in, in, in Glasgow. And they came here, and I either I, I could either live at home and go to UCLA, or I wasn't going to college. We just didn't have the money for that. And mm-hmm. people say, well, the, the world is your oyster. You can do anything in America— no, it wasn't. I didn't know. I didn't have that confidence. We didn't sure. have money. There was just I, I just, I find that the downside of a meritocracy and capitalism is that we assume anybody can be anything. And if you're not successful, you're a loser. You screwed up because we live in a society, supposedly, where anyone could do anything. And my dad, who's well-meaning, but not what I'd call, you know, a very worldly guy, said, you don't need college. I'm getting, I'm getting you a job installing shelving, which, by the way, was going to be 18 bucks an hour, which seemed like a lot of money to me and could fulfill my dream of getting a, a Z28 or a Trans Am, which was right. the only goal I had at the, age of, at the age of 18. And my mom said, you need to appeal to UCLA. You have to go to college. She was smart enough. And I, the truth has a nice ring to it. I literally said, "I'm you letting me in or I'm installing shelving? And I remember the day <laughs> they called me at home 
And this woman said, you're a substandard student, but you don't test well, but you're a native <laughs> son of California, and we're going to let you in. And I rewarded them with a 2.27 GPA from UCLA. And then they took another chance on me and let me into grad school at Berkeley. How did you get into Berkeley with uh, mediocre grades? Uh, so my yeah. my only saving grace is I'm an idiot savant with standardized tests. Yeah. So, or as my wife would say, you're half of that. Yeah, so, I'm just an idiot when it comes to tests. Right. That's uh, the half. I'm but, half that. But so I was able to get into grad yeah. school. How did you get into Berkeley from UCLA with bad grades and bad tests? Uh, again, uh, generosity of a woman named Fran Hill. I, you know, I had some positive attributes. I had finagled my way into Morgan Stanley. I had offers from several investment banks. I interview well. I took a job with Morgan Stanley because I heard they didn't check transcripts and I lied about my grades. <laughs> I heard they didn't drug that test That was a either. rumor. They don't check transcripts. Yeah, well, they didn't back then. And then That's a kid, amazing. And then a kid had found out found out a kid was accused of insider trading, had never graduated from the University of Illinois, and they and started they checking check everybody's transcripts. Sure. Anyways, that was uh -oh. the benefit of an analog age is that uh, uh, you could get sure. away with stuff like that. And they also, I heard they didn't drug test, which ended up being a lie. But anyways... I went to Morgan Stanley. I was involved in a lot of activities. I was an athlete at UCLA. So I had some positive stuff, but I remember them calling me and saying, we, we love your application, but we think there's an error. It says that your GPA is 2.27, which, keep in mind, is not easy to do. No, that's a bit. Because if you get less than 2.0, you You're go out. at academic probation, yeah. and then you go subject to dismissal. So you got to get a bunch of Ds, and then you got to get above a 2.0 to reset the clock for two more semesters. Right. So I came perilously close. I was sleepwalking through life, like a lot of 22-year-olds, uh, to not getting into, you know, to getting kicked out of UCLA. But again, Berkeley took a chance on me, got my act together. I think, like you, I was a bit of a late bloomer, mm -hmm. and you know, started an upward spiral. But if it hadn't been for the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the Regents of UC, Berkeley will graduate more kids from low-income households this year than the entire Ivy League combined. Seven of the ten—that's amazing. Seven of the ten universities with the greatest income diversity are all university are University of California schools. But in general, I would argue that universities in the U.S. have lost the script, see themselves as luxury brands. We need to massively increase the number of seats. We need to tax endowments if they don't grow their seats faster than inflation. Stanford has tripled has tripled the number of applicants. They haven't increased their freshman seats. Hardly at all. That is, in my opinion, a crime. The head of admissions at Harvard says we could have doubled our freshman class without sacrificing any quality with a $38 billion endowment. Well, Boston, why aren't you doing that? This has literally become, we have to get to a point where we're more like Canada, where more kids have access to the greatest the greatest lubricant for upward mobility in the world, and that is uh, higher education. And, and speaking of lubricants to higher education, you've made a number of gifts to both Berkeley and NYU. Tell us what motivated that. Is that just gratitude and giving back? You know, it just pan. It, that was an easy one for me. That was just an easy one. I got really lucky, and uh, you know, I just want that. That was just easy. Uh, it's if it hadn't been for, unfortunately, college is a lot more expensive now. And that was just an obvious nod to, to uh, again, California taxpayers and, and the, the, the jewel of California, the University of California. So that was just an overdue nod to, uh, to the University of California. So, so let's talk about luck, because it's a, a really, I don't want to call it a theme, but it's a thread that runs through the book, and it's worth mm -hmm. exploring a little bit. You reference how incredibly lucky you've been. Mm -hmm. I've had numerous people sit in that yep. seat, and that seat where you are, yep. and they've all said billionaires, Nobel laureates, yep. um, masters in business, who have yep. all said, you know, but for a lucky break here or the way the yep. bounce, ball bounced there, I wouldn't be here today. 
Well, look, it's easy to credit your character and your grit for your successes in the markets for your failures. I have no such delusions, and it's not a humble brag. It really isn't. And it can be tiny switches in your DNA or the way you're born. My, we've, I think I've talked about this with you. My freshman roommate in the fraternity, mm-hmm. to be born in 1964, a white heterosexual male in the greatest- In the United States, uh, yeah. In the United States, the greatest country in the world, and in California, which was about to experience the greatest increase in value. In, you know, in we, history. Th- there was more value created in a seven-mile radius of SFO from 92 to 99 than all of Europe since World War II. And I would just happen to be at the right place at the right time. Luckiest person in the world, right? A white guy, heterosexual. We had advantages that other people did not have, and that's unfair, but the reality was I was all of those things. And so I got very lucky. There was one other question I wanted to get to um, before some of our favorite questions, and I have variations of our favorite questions. All right, 2017. You mentioned that you were selling assets. You were moving to cash. Yeah. Have you still? Are you still in that position? I was stupid. I was a reaction. I was angry about Trump's election, and uh, I got advice from you. Always be in the market. We can't time the markets. And also at the Motorins told me the same thing. I went back in the markets, and I, I thank God I did. It's been an unbelievable ride up. I do think there are certain canaries in the coal mine, though. I think when modestly talented twenty-five-year-olds are getting one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. because they know how they know Python. When midtown or downtown real estate in bad, you know, kind of marginal areas is getting 50 or 60 bucks a square foot, you know, just uh, I see mediocre restaurants you can't get reservations at. There's right. just certain, I feel like we're late cycle. It certainly it feels, feels like, like that. We're ready. We're due, right? So here's the interesting thing coming out of a financial crisis, you yeah. tend to have a longer, more modest, this is Reinhardt and Rogoff's research, yeah. you have a longer but more modest um, economic expansion. So, here we are. The yeah. recession ended technically 2009, 2010. It's nine years later. It's a pretty long run. Isn't um, it the longest ever? I mean, this is kind of your thing, pretty, isn't it's it? It's pretty close to it. I mean, yeah. you could you could go through earlier periods and post-World War II periods and find it, although there were a lot of small recessions, late 50s, early 60s. Um, so we're the, the problem is it's such an artificial period with yeah. Fed stimulus, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. It's... it's if it's the longest one, it's the longest one with an asterisk. Although, when you look around the world, Australia went more than 25 years without a recession in the boom period of China's growth. So that's kind of interesting isn't, as well. isn't all this basically our generation has gotten really smart? Or, um, I'm just uh, on the tail of the baby boom. Hasn't our generation just perfectly gamed the system and figured out a way to elect officials and basically said, we want the greatest transfer in wealth ever occur, uh, ever registered in history to be from every other cohort to baby boomers. So basically, big tech is a vessel of the transfer of wealth from the entire world to the U.S. and then to the coast. And everything from Social Security to artificially suppressing interest rates to drive up asset values to Social Security to mortgage tax deduction to capital gains is nothing but a giant transfer of wealth from every cohort to baby boomers. From the future pulled back pulled to the forward. baby boomers. Listen, I— so oh, I would and argue two trillion in debt. Well, I would argue low that you're you're technically not a baby boomer. You're sort of in the valley between yeah, the boomers and, Gen X and the Gen X. Yeah, yeah. I, like to me, the baby boomers ended in 1959. If you were born in the 60s, yeah, I'm 64. I, you, you're just so. My sister was born in 64. Yeah. I'm I got two and a half years on you. Uh, you don't really feel like a baby boomer. That's a whole different. Like I don't relate to the boomers. I kind of look at them askance. But I also look at Gen X, which is totally different than yeah. than me. 
Um, but I think the boomers are the worst generation, and I think history will bear that out. The greediest generation in history. Yeah, absolutely. And everything, in my view, we talk about, There's a, I, went on, I go on Fox once a week because I like to go behind enemy lines, and they have this- They came, by the way, I love watching you on that because they don't know what the hell to do with you. You're clearly a yeah, capitalist. They introduced me as you, a socialist. <laughs> you, they, you just sold L2 yeah. to Gartner last year. You've yeah. sold, how many companies have gone public or have been purchased? Three, four? Yeah, I'm three, four, and two. Okay, so that's <laughs> a great track record. Not really. You're, listen, <laughs> you know- That's what's great about America is guys like me can survive. I'd be in some sort of prison if I were No, if you're a US. venture capitalist, you're going to yeah. make 100 investments. You're looking for the one home run. Yeah. Three, four, and two is a great track record for- Stop that. and think about how Lucky. many startups fail. Yeah, well, most one of, of, them, one of my equations is success is really resili- resilience over There's failure. a lot to that. You keep mentioning grit. Yeah. Um, but they don't know how to deal with you because you are a capitalist, but you talk about empathy and about um, helping others and about things beyond mere money, and they're perplexed by it. Well, it's, it's, so they, they had this, it was hilarious, they had this socialism versus capitalism week on Fox. And guess what? Capitalism won. Go right? figure. And so they, they invited me on, and for some reason they always introduced me as a socialist. And I like those guys, like so Stuart Varney and Nick Neil Cavuto. I think they're really Cavuto's intelligent. Cavuto's great. I know Cavuto Really intelligent, years. interesting yeah. guys. And they're generous to me, and they're nice to me. I, actually, I really like the people over there, despite being at sort of a, you know, them spinning up hate on a regular basis. Right. Other than the hate-based business model, they're fantastic. But I'm writing, and I'm going to need your help on this. I'm writing an article for The Economist, or I'm claimed to be writing an article. And they on on capitalism and socialism is nothing but okay the means of production controlled by the state and divvied up by, and the spoils divvied up. Tariffs are socialist, of course. Artificially suppressing interest rates are socialist. Anti-competitive. Telling, telling a telling an air conditioning company to locate in Michigan is socialist. Child labor laws are socialist. Capital gains, tax cuts, socialist. So. You, me, and the president walk into a bar. Two of us are capitalists. The president is a socialist. And <laughs> the, I just don't the, understand. How about the entire reimbursing farmers who supported him against Chinese tariffs? How is that well, well, anything but socialism? I mean, we're really going off script now. But you look at the... I initially thought, okay, I'm, I'm a fan of actually going after China for unfair trade. I believe that we have this unbelievable ecosystem where the greatest universities in the world train some incredible human talent and then concert with incredible financial system we create innovation that's just unparalleled the chinese then steal it right. and then sell it back to us for 30 cents in the dollar so i am all for a trade war but here's the problem one we could have done it with partners and two the chinese think in 20 and 30 year increments right. they are willing to shut down towns and say oh sorry you need to relocate right. the tariffs are bad we don't care relocate it is what it is a farmer goes out of business, and MSNBC is out there, and the president is trying to bail them out. We right. just don't have—it's like fight, It's like going to war with Russia. You can have better tanks. You can have better officers. Their willingness to endure suffering right. is just going to end badly for whoever invades them. And I think the same is true of this trade war, unfortunately. So normally, around now, I would go to my favorite questions, but yes. you've done them so many times, I had to come up with some- New ones? Variations okay. on them. So so let's um, let's Sorry. speed round this. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So normally, around now, I ask what you the first car you own, but I'm going to ask, yeah. what's the next car you're going to buy? You know, you're a car guy. So I'm I'm in the midst of a midlife crisis that I think I'm going to grow out of in about 30 or 40 years. Right. So I'm- Just buy the car. It's cheaper to do. I got it. Okay, that's right. Uh, so I have a GL550. I have a truck right now, Mercedes. I can't stand that truck. Oh, it's an I amazing car. I can't believe car. you have that. It's an amazing car. I it's look like an ugliest ambassador. thing. I roll up, bit to baby. I look so German <laughs> and so interesting in that car. By the way, most Danke, of my- baby. Most uh, of my cars genius. are German cars. So I'm genius. not- 
They, uh, you know, they just redesigned it, and when you look at it, you can't unless they're side by side. You can't even tell. It's a fantastic the car. Changes. I have the Model X, the Tesla. I oh, don't really? like electric. I like. I just don't like the feel of it. I like an internal combustion engine. It's a great car. I don't enjoy it. I don't like but, it. By the way, go on YouTube. Watch the videos of the Model X blowing away yeah. Ferraris and Lamborghinis. Oh, no. It's it's, it is a superior car. Right. But uh, Elon Musk called a cave diver trying to save young people's lives a pedophile. Yeah, I and I went on CNBC about. the next day and I announced I was selling it. So I have to sell the thing. Right. Yeah. And by the way, the depreciation on those bad boys enormous. is pretty significant. Yeah, enormous. So I said, okay, I got to get another car. And you immediately weighed in and said, and I'm thinking I want to get a Range Rover because I'm all about signaling my worth as a man sure. and as a mate. So I need to find some ridiculously overpriced. But you car have the G wagon. What? So I would picture you in the HSC. No, the GL five fifty, not the G wagon. Oh, that's I a thought stupid you stupid car. That's what that's I thought you were talking car. about. Rides terribly. Wait, the GL. Oh, so you have the the have longer the, the longer sport Ute. I yeah. immediately assumed you went G wagon. No, 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 no. Oh, that, I'm that's insecure. why I'm insecure, but I'm not pathetic. That's <laughs> that's what <laughs> I was on, pushing boss. back against. I missed the. That's like drive. That's literally like okay. I'm, it's a German I, military vehicle. I need to find a way to spend more money than owning a Hummer. It's right. Like I'm, That's right. I, I, I own a Hummer. Get the AMG version of it. Yeah, it's like $220,000. Totally ridiculous car. So, so the GL right, is- so I'm asking you a question. You know me pretty well. Yeah. What's my next car? Pick it. Pick it. So, What's my next so car? So you're, you're a dual city- yeah. Right? Yeah. New York, the, Florida. To yeah. me, I don't see how you don't have a 911 convertible down Oh, dude, Florida. I can't fit in a Porsche. I'm of six foot three. Of course you can. <laughs> I have buddies with 6'6". Six, six who... By the way, okay. I am not a Porsche Here's guy. Here's the problem. I am not a Here's Porsche guy. Here's the problem. First, I do not fit in a Porsche. I'd have an elbow out each window. Okay. That is a ridiculous car. It's a beautiful car. I'm I don't think it's beautiful. It's just a very fast, no, good a handling car. car. That's a gorgeous uh, car. 911? You want a pretty yeah. car, go buy a Bentley, go buy an Aston Martin. I'm not a sports car guy. All right, so then... What is... What is the big dog rolling? Come on. So I have an M6 convertible. That's uh, M6 convertible? Now, let me just explain. That is ridiculous. Let me just explain. It's totally ridiculous. I'm also a cheap SOB, so I won't go out and spend $130,000 That's called not having kids. Car. You don't have kids, right? I don't have kids. I have, uh, I have a house. I have five ridiculous. cars and a boat. But hold that aside. <laughs> oh, my God. I bought this car off of lease of from course, Indianapolis. Right. 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 Pristine condition, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I paid less. You were the than... guy that used to surf through the recycler when you were a teenager. No, said, no, no. Well, to look at cars, sure. All right, enough but of you. Back to me. Back what car to you. do I buy? See, Barry, sell a car. Masters in business. <sighs> what car do I get? See, I, I frustrated see you... professor, angry Range Rover HSC Sport so? is. That's what I should do. Is now understand Range Rovers are wildly overpriced. Totally. Yeah. Right. They lease out terribly. Yeah. They purchase terribly. Yeah. They're not known for their for their mechanical reliability. Range Rover HSE. But if you want to signal, yeah, that's your that's signal. Right. I'm in, you know? boss. I, I think in. that's the way to go. Yeah. Even though I can give you a million reasons why no one should buy that car, but the signaling to show your worthiness to take care of somebody. you get me. I, you get me. I totally me. do. Even though you should be in some cute little sports car, I don't yeah, see you in a Bentley or anything. That's not um, so in the book, I discovered a fascinating thing about one of your mentors. Yeah. Your mentor taught the exact same class in marketing and branding that you yeah. teach? My ca class is based on David Ocker's course, uh, Father of Modern Branding. Didn't know what I wanted to do. As we referenced before, business school is mostly for the elite and the aimless. It's mm -hmm. people who want out of the profession they're in. Uh, I knew I didn't know what I wanted to do. Just knew I didn't want to go back to investment banking. Took this second year class with David Ocker. He talked about the importance of yellow and how intangibles created more shareholder value than any other 
any other uh, system or construct in history. He really kind of identified and encapsulated the brand era. And I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. And I went to him and said, I'm starting a consulting firm based on your principles called Profit. I'd like you to join. He said, no way. I'm not interested in working with you. You're a second-year student. (laughs) But long story short- And Profit ultimately was sold, wasn't it? Yeah, we grew it to 400 people. It's still around today. I think it's about 500 people now. Sold it to Dentsu. Uh, Tremendously rewarding. Ultimately, David did join- as vice chairman, but you know, what do you want when you go to school? You want to find someone who inspires you and sets you off on a career that is rewarding uh, personally and economically, and I got that from David Ocker. So around now, I ask the book question, tell me yep. about your favorite books, but we've done that already. Done that, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a different book. Yeah. Different book question, tell me about a book yep. that changed the direction of your life. It's weird. He just died, actually. I read my first kind of real novel was in high school, and it's not that dramatic. I read a book by Herman Wook called The Winds of War. Sure. And just learning about— Big, thick book, yeah, wasn't big, it? big, thick book. And just learning about World War II and the you know what was probably the kind of the defining conflict of our century and what different groups went, the, learning about the Holocaust. It just sort of got me thinking about things I had never thought about and sort of changed, got me interested in history, got me interested in war history. Uh, so that for me was sort of my, you know, kind of first adult book, if you will. Huh. So you are an open book and you reveal yourself warts and all. I'm an open book, Barry. But tell us something <laughs> we don't know about Scott Galloway. Uh, oh gosh. Is there anything we don't know about Scott? Yeah, Gallo? pretty much lay it all out there. I was the Bruin Bear mascot my sophomore year at UCLA. Like oh, no, the, wait. The ca- I, won, I won most comical in junior high school. In junior high school? Yeah, junior high school poll, most comical. I didn't know they voted for that there sort of go. stuff. Yeah. All right, so- and Steve Martin. That's I'm aging myself. I got Steve wait, Martin. Wait, wait, wait. And since then, I haven't had a single award. Wait, Steve Martin? You know, they do. Do you remember in high school and junior high, they would do like, you know, and just to give you with the age I went to high school, I got Steve Martin. That was like my thing in the high school poll. Oh, so most likely to be like Steve yeah, Martin. Not, not yeah. you went to school with Steve yeah. Martin. No, no, no. Who no, I no. think is was, a decade or so me. older yeah, than you, for sure. Yeah. Um, so tell us what you do for fun outside of class, outside of sure. occasionally holding on to a fiberglass board. Sure, pretty, pretty boring. Uh, not that interesting. Uh, you know, time with kids, a lot of Netflix. Um, what know, are you watching on Netflix? Well, my new favorite show is, I mean, I'm, I'm like everyone else, I'm obsessed with Game of Thrones. I think Veep is the best written show on TV. Veep the is new, hilarious. The new show that I love is Fleabag, which you may or may not have heard of. Who, the person who wrote Fleabag wrote something else. Oh, really? I'm trying to remember what it was. I haven't started Fleabag. It's outstanding. And also Killing Eve is really wonderful. Really? Yeah, so every Thursday night I do the same thing. I commute between her and Florida. I go home. I take a run, I come back, I put my kids to bed, I vape with my wife, I'm finally confident enough to say that, mm-hmm. and then we watch television. So I think the key, I think the defining art form of this age is television. No, no we are in the golden age of television. 100%. I'm going to give you three recommendations. Go for it. Uh, one of them I don't know if you're going to like. You like sci-fi at all? Lay it on me, Barry. The Expanse. The Expanse. Spectacular. Just, Where's that? So the Expanse. There's TV I don't know about. It's either Netflix or Amazon. So the Expanse takes place in the not too distant future. Yeah. You have three political powers. You have yeah. Earth. Yeah. You have Mars, and then you have the the belt out yeah. where the miners are out pulling stuff off. Anyway, fascinating science fiction. Really kind of interesting. Did you watch the Terror. I don't. Oh, um, you got, if you watch, uh, I watch Ridley Black Scott. Mirror and yeah. oh, I love Ridley Scott. The I'm Terror, one of the best. Fan. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Black Mirror and yeah. Electric Dreams is another uh, yeah, yeah. Philip okay, K. Dick so, thing. Okay, so all right. But the two the comedies Expanse. I want to share with yeah. you. 
Um, have you started seeing on Netflix, I'm Sorry? I haven't. Is that great? Oh, it's so... F- Picture, if I had to sum it up in 30 seconds, female comedy writer married with a little girl. Mm-hmm. Picture a female version of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Not as nasty, but more of a sitcom funny. Yep. Very, very good. And the new one I just started, the new one I just started watching with Christine Applegate, Dead to Me. That's good. Really, really interesting. So along those lines, watch Ricky Gervais's new uh, series. <laughs> Already went through. Fantastic. Yeah, really uh, That's really Life, good. something That's like life. that. Fa- uh, fabulous. Life or whatever. Really strong. Uh, um, all right. Our last two questions. Yes. And the problem, I can't ask you the advice you'd give yep. a millennial because yep. your whole book is advice to millennials. Yep. Yep. What advice do you wish you got when you got out of college that nobody told you? Uh, it's gonna. Everything's gonna be okay. I was insecure. I, I, really? Yeah. But but in the book, they they've surveyed uh, seniors on what piece of advice they would give themselves uh-huh. uh, to their younger selves, and consistently it comes back, and it's sort of the same advice. Uh, they wish their their one wish and their advice to themselves is they wish they'd been less hard on themselves. Go easy on yourself. And that is, look, life's you're gonna screw up and bring forgiveness. I mean, one of the keys to long-term relationships is forgiveness. It's mm-hmm. difficult to maintain a long-term relationship unless you assume the other person is going to occasionally screw up and you need to bring forgiveness to the relationship. And you also need to bring that to yourself and be a little let, because in the moment it seems like a big deal, but if you, again, the one piece of advice seniors would give to themselves is they wish they hadn't been so hard on themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, you know, it's going to be okay. Quite fascinating. Scott Galloway, this has been absolutely delightful. Uh, and, we, if, and you sold a Range Rover. And I sold a Range Rover, right, an HSC. Be sure to get it with the upgraded um, uh, package that stops and does the lane avoidance warning. Um, and I'm not a fan of that car, but that's got your name written all over it. You know it, dog. We have been speaking with NYU Stern School of Business professor Scott Galloway, author of The Algebra of Happiness. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. Um, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the previous uh, 250 or so conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and hit the like button uh, that you might see on whatever site you're on. Give us a, a review. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack crew that helps put this podcast together each week. Medina Parwana is my taskmaster slash producer. Uh, Michael Boyle is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project director. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.